welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting Professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. 2022 is rolling with our January podcasts. My hope is that we give you some different things to think about this month. We jump right into vision, cognition, and skill acquisition with Dr. Luke Wilkins. Dr. Wilkins is a senior lecturer in sport and exercise psychology at Nottingham Trent University in the UK. He attained his PhD in vision testing and visual training in sport from the University of Birmingham in 2015 under the supervision of Dr. Rob Gray. Prior to working at NTU, Dr. Wilkins worked for the New York Yankees as both a vision, perception, and cognition coach, as well as a skill acquisition specialist. Get ready to see what is on the horizon from a player development standpoint. We dive into research on the role vision plays in performance, virtual reality, stroboscopic glasses, and a whole host of other resources to dive into. Let's welcome Dr. Luke Wilkins to the podcast. Here with Dr. Luke Wilkins, Senior Lecturer in Sport and Exercise Physiology at Nottingham Trent University. Worked with the New York Yankees as Vision, Perception, Cognition Coach, and a Skill Acquisition Specialist. Dr. Wilkins, thanks for jumping on with me. Thank you for having me. You know, and shout out to John Kramer with the Yankees uh, who got us connected. He and I played college baseball together and have had a, a great relationship for over 20 years. So I appreciate uh, him getting us connected on this. Uh, you know, for people that don't know you, talk a little bit about your path in sports. Yeah, so um, my path in sports is very much sports as opposed to necessarily baseball specifically, which I imagine most of your guests are. Um, and in fact, uh I pretty much didn't know anything about baseball um, until I guess the film Moneyball came out in I think 2011 or whatever it was. Um, in fact, that's not quite true. I remember going on a family vacation when I was about eight or nine to Disney World, and it was back when Epcot had all like the future video gaming and all that sort of stuff. And I remember spending the whole day just playing the MLB game on PlayStation when I was about eight. Uh, so. Apart from that little one day, um, my experience in baseball only came about you know, when Moneyball came out and I loved that film and it's very much up my alley, very data-driven, stati statistics. Um, that is my ballpark. Um, but yeah, my background is sports science. I did some work with uh, some football teams over in England, soccer teams, sorry, should I say, in England. And did some work in cricket. I've used to play cricket quite a bit. Um, I'm actually trying to stay up and become nocturnal over the next few weeks because there's a big, uh, big test series or big um, matchup between England and Australia. I'm not sure if any Americans would be familiar with that, but some are now because of the docu series, the test that was on um, Amazon Prime uh, with Jeremy Langer, which I thought was phenomenal. So it, it, you are starting to see people follow cricket a little bit more, just because I'm fascinated by the test, especially for how long they go, how long they hit for, <laughs> how long they play defense for. I'm fascinated by the endurance 
uh, because yeah. there are some baseball components with it. And when you look at the test and some of the training that they're using in the cage area, there there's some crossover between some of the training that's going on with baseball and cricket right now. Yeah, absolutely. And um, in fact, you, you, you sometimes see on YouTube, don't you? You see some professional cricket players have a go at swinging a baseball bat and then you'll see the baseball players having a go at cricket. And it's normally quite fun to watch them. Um, and, you know, that they'd be way better than I was at, you know, swinging a baseball bat and things like that. So there's definitely some transfer skills there. But, yeah, so um, my background was sports science. I did a degree at Birmingham, uh, which is in the UK, not the one in Alabama. Uh, Birmingham is basically for, for anyone who don't know, doesn't know over in America, it's uh, if everyone has seen Peaky Blinders, have you heard of that TV show? That's that's Birmingham for you. So if you can't understand my accent, it's it's probably because of that. Um, I went to the university there, graduated in sports science, and then taught at Birmingham and then at Newcastle. And it was actually at Newcastle where I was doing research with stroboscopic glasses, um, which are glasses that sort of the lenses flicker. And they became quite popular in the early 2010s. Um, NFL players using them, Larry Fitzgerald, um, Mark Sanchez, people like that were using them. And um, Greg Applebaum, who we were just speaking about before we, we came on air. And um, he's probably you know, the, the most researched person in this field. And just randomly, I thought to myself, Do you know what? I'm going to reach out to him and see if he wants to write a review paper. And he did. And we ended up writing a really nice review paper on the research area that was published. And then probably... In fact, it was probably during that time that John Kramer, who at the time was the head of performance science at the Yankees, reached out to Greg and said, um, we're looking for a vision cognition scientist. And uh, do you know anyone? And Greg put forward my name. So I, I you know, said, <laughs> I don't know much about baseball, but I know the Yankees are a big deal. So absolutely, I'd be interested. So... I applied, um, interviewed, and somehow, somehow got the job for that, which was an absolutely incredible experience, uh, one which I wish could have lasted a little bit longer. Um, I was over there for almost two years um, and then had to come back because my wife was unable to get a work visa, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, two great years, and that's, I guess, my story up until and including the Yankees. Hey, do you think it, it helps to come in with a fresh set of eyes, maybe not knowing as much about baseball? Do you think it, it helps coming in with a clean slate like that? Uh, yes, I do. Um, maybe that's just my bias there, but I think, I mean, for sure. Well, and you just said bias. Like, I, I think it I think it flushes some of those biases that, that maybe a coach that's been around that sport for a long time, I think it flushes all those out. Yeah. I remember reading, um, there was a book and um, the – the book basically told the story of how the, the I think it's the full court. My, my knowledge of basketball is not great. So apologies if this is not the correct terminology, but apparently the, the full court press strategy came about from someone who wasn't actually in basketball, but was just observing a practice and actually said, Oh, what about doing this? So there's definitely this case of innovation can come about from people who are seeing things from a fresh set of uh, fresh perspective, fresh set of eyes, as you just said there. And, Obviously, you know, you don't want everyone in your organization to have that perspective. You do need that experience. You do need those years of knowledge, deep understanding of the game. But absolutely, you know, if I was running a sports organization, I'd definitely want a few people with that diverse background in there. What were some of your initial questions? You know, you, you get there, you start working with the Yankees. What were some, some of maybe your first questions as far as from a training standpoint, what you were seeing, maybe some things that – not that they didn't make sense, but, you know, why the, the why behind some of the training pieces? Oof, that is a good question. Um, I, I, well, my first, my first time, you know, first few months there was spent just observing. So I guess, um, you know, I had a bunch of questions, but it was key for me to observe, understand, um, know what was going on first. Um, yeah, it's a difficult one, really. Um, I guess I was asking as many questions as I could, really. Uh, you know, 
why it, I, I don't uh, I'm tempted to not say this but I guess one of the one of the things that I was you know questioning was the use of teas at practice um, and that can be quite a conscious subject it is and we can we can go there i mean because you don't see it in cricket you don't see it in tennis um maybe and i don't know what the weight of the cricket bat is that they use i don't know how similar the weight is that that's always been like the question for me and and david whiteside and i are going to talk about this a little bit too is is a heavier material that we're swinging is there is there some application maybe building up because it is heavier, um, that would be that's my question. And you're also dealing with guys that that's part of their routine. You know, you're dealing with elite professional athletes that that is that part of their routine, and some don't use it. So you know that that's maybe a personal preference thing more than a science based thing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so you, your question was, you know, what question did I have? Yeah. And I guess um, to be perfectly honest, that was a question. You know. Yeah from an outsider's perspective, it is odd. It is a strange concept. But then, looking at it from the other perspective, I've always said that science will tell you a lot and science can help guide us a lot. But the number one thing is that player feels comfortable and confident. And if they are comfortable and confident using a T, then I'm never going to take it away from them or I'm never going to encourage that to happen. Um, so yes, that was a question of mine, which but... is fascinating to me. Cause you know, somebody that's grown up around baseball, that makes sense to me that somebody that hasn't been around baseball, that would be one of the first questions that they have is why are you using a, a piece of equipment that doesn't really relate to the in-game experience and what they're experiencing in game like that. That's a, a very con- should be a common question for somebody that doesn't know about the training piece of baseball. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that because I was very hesitant, as you could probably tell. (laughs) But that's the great thing about bringing a fresh set of eyes in because somebody that's been around the game that long, they're going to think this, but you bring somebody in with a fresh set of eyes, that is going to be one of the first questions. But that's that's what you need for growth and for player performance. You You need somebody that's outside of your realm to ask those questions and bring up good, healthy confrontation and conversation about that. Yeah, and even if the end answer is, okay, we're going to stick with the T's because of X, Y, and Z, that's great. Um, but like you said, at least the conversation's been had then. And I have a science background as well. I've done research, so that, that makes sense to me. Like that, That's the great thing with science and research is asking those questions. And, and you may find that, that the questions that you're asking are good or not good, and you may come to a, a realization that there is a place for this or there isn't a place for this. But that's the great thing with science is it allows you to ask those questions, then you test it and figure out, it, you know, does the theory actually work in practice? You know, I think for me, that's the great thing with science is, is asking those questions, and there's some theory behind it, but is there some practical application to those questions that you're asking? Yeah, absolutely. And you talked about the strobe. You know, you're seeing it more with baseball now, the, the stroboscopic glasses. You're seeing it with hitting. Um, you know, Jamie Carroll's used it with their infielders, with the Pirates. You're seeing it in fielding. You know, what were some of the other things that stuck out when you were researching the, the strobe glasses? Uh, yeah, so there's, there's a um, strong, I think, theoretical underpinning to those glasses. Uh, I always kind of use the analogy of it's a little bit like when people go jogging with weights on their ankles or weights on their wrists. Now, you know, the, the physiology, physiologists and biomechanists will probably say, you know, that's actually not good for you. And, and um, they're probably right. But the analogy still holds that they go out jogging with those weights on so that then when they take the weights off, it feels easier and they feel like they can run further and, and um, with less effort. That's kind of like the strobe glasses. You put the gl- glasses on, you can't see as much it forces you to maybe focus on the bits of vision that you do get and then when you take them off everyone that I've ever done this with all the athletes that I've worked with they say you know the ball feels slower the ball looks bigger it does feel easier now is the scientific evidence there backing it up I would say that's very mixed but science is hard and um, you know if we're getting a lot of anecdotal evidence Yes, we, we would like scientific evidence to back it up, but um, you know there is still something there from my perspective. I think the difficult part with baseball, with with the science piece of it, is there's so many variables 
you know, how are you able to test? So say the glasses, how are you able to test that? And then what's the validation piece? Is it how they're performing on the field? Is it how they're performing in practice? I think that's the, all the, the gray area variables with baseballs, because it's, it's really hard to set up a scientific research where you have a control group, where you have an experimental group. You know, I, I think that's the difficult thing with, with trying to maybe bring some science in. You can do it, but I think it's hard to test it because there's just so many different variables, especially with swinging a bat and, and hitting a ball. There's just a lot of variables. So what, what do you base that off of? You know, with the research piece, when you're, you're setting that up, how are you getting the results? So what are you basing it off of um, to, to know that, okay, it does work a little bit or maybe it doesn't work? Yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, the, the skills that we're talking about are such complex skills. And when you first think about it and you're thinking, okay, you're swinging a bat, it, you know, it's far more than that. There are so many different moving parts that you can't break that down, that skill down into something that is then scientifically controlled and, and reliable and valid. And if you do, then it becomes no longer the skill that you're trying to test. So, you know, <laughs> it all comes back to this idea that the science is pretty hard to do. Um, but like I said, I think the, the theoretical underpinning uh, underpinning is there and there is there is you know some evidence it's not like there's no evidence at all there's it's mixed evidence there's there's a, quite a bit still there for it yeah it's it, it's still in the forefront and you know the cognition piece I, I think that's the next step in evolution for baseball training is still understanding how the brain works how vision works how how depth perception works i think we're still at the ground floor and I think that's the next evolution for baseball is really figuring out how people are processing the information and then how it relates to the on-field application as well. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I, I really like about the stroke glasses is that they keep the training in context. So you are still doing the skills that are relevant for baseball, whether that's fielding or whether that's hitting. You're still performing those tasks. It's just that you're wearing glasses. So it's not like a Dynavision um, or a fit light board or something like that. You're keeping it in context, which is key. You sent me some really good articles, by the way, so I appreciate it. And I just want to talk a little bit and dive into those. You know, the first one you sent me was, is optimal vision required for the successful execution of an interceptive task? Which I thought how you set up, how it was set up, I thought it was great. So can you dive in a little bit for somebody that maybe hasn't read that article? Yeah, so this is probably my favorite study, which is probably a really geeky thing to say as well, that you have a favorite study. But this is a study by uh, Dave Mann, who um, is, is a good friend, actually. And he is he's an Australian, um, background a lot in cricket. Uh, he's over at Re University at the moment. But basically, they put on, uh, they, they took uh, regional level cricketers and they tested them, their, their batting performance under different conditions of blur. So different conditions of visual acuity. Um, and they did that by putting glasses on that manipulated the, their vision, essentially. And they found that you know, distorting vision, you know, inducing a bit of blur into batters, actually didn't really affect performance at all. And it was only when they were using visual glasses, so um, levels of blur that made them legally blind, so very, very detrimental, very, very... Um, poor levels of acuity when batting performance decreased. So essentially saying that visual acuity and specifically visual, I guess, static visual acuity in that instance, um, wasn't that necessary for effective batting performance. And, and for the cricketers that they were using and how experienced were they? They were may be wrong but i'm pretty sure they were what we would call club level cricketers so um i guess it's a hard uh, and i yeah so they they'd been playing for a while yes yeah, so they would be i guess your equivalent of say like a triple a yeah um or something like that is probably the best comparison and now does that go so you're dealing with some elite cricketers and does that go into because they have so much experience of of hitting a cricket ball same as a baseball player who's who's hit a, a baseball for a long time because the the visual piece out of the hand is important but the perception piece and where the ball's going to end up is just as important for both of those sports 
So you're dealing with a, an experienced group that maybe has an understanding, even if they're not seeing great, that, okay, the ball's coming out of the hand. I have an idea of where generally it's going to end up at, at the plate. Um, you know, that, that goes into it too, correct? Yeah, definitely. So there's that pre-release cues, that kinematic information of the, the bowler in this instance or a pitcher in, in baseball that, would, that is going to be giving them so much information. You know, in baseball, um, you know, you're not going to be able to hit the ball. It's just too short an amount of time if you're not using pre-release uh, cues. It's, it will be impossible. Um, there's that. And there's also another suggestion that the authors made, which I thought was really fascinating, was that the blur might have actually forced them to search harder for the ball. And, you know, you, you're impoverishing their visual conditions. So they are they're you know, working harder and, and maybe it um, eliminates the complacency, perhaps, of, of batters in that instance by making them work a bit harder. And it simplifies things correct because you, you have all yes. this kind of like with the strobe glasses you have all this other stuff going on that you really have to find something that works to center in to, to actually work to, to see the ball a little bit more yeah definitely i think that is a key part as well i showed the article to my daughter she doesn't see very good and i was like hey you still have a chance she's in high school now i'm like you can still go back and play softball because this article is showing that that you don't have to see great uh to be productive at the plate <laughs> so absolutely and i mean it, this was cricket, but, you know, research has been shown in baseball as well. Daniel Levy um, showed, you know, he showed that 80% of base, uh, MLB players, and this was back in 95, 80% of hitters had above average vision. But that still means that 20%, which is a huge chunk, had average or worse. Now, you know, yes, that probably is still in favor of vision being important, but you, you can definitely make it with with average or slightly below. and i'm glad you brought that up because i always do throw that stat out there that's like 2013 on average for from major league hitter the eyesight but i'm glad that that i need people to check my thinking sometimes because it's not all of them it's not a hundred percent of them there are some outliers that don't have you know over perfect vision so i appreciate when people check my thinking because it allows me to think about things in a better way as well yeah absolutely it's it was you know, it's great research and it does show the importance of it. But um, if you're from a, say, scouting department, are you willing to risk losing 20% of the population because your, sing like, you know, your singular focus is that? Now, if that's the case, then yes, that's fine. Just be aware that that is a potential um, area that you're going to Quick break for another one of our sponsors, Team Builder. Team Builder is offering both in-season and off-season strength and conditioning programs specific to pitchers or position players. These programs come free with any Team Builder free trial. Their software is trusted and used by the best. Team Builder has helped propel many teams to win championships and most recently the World Series Championship Atlanta Braves. Personally, we used Team Builder in my last couple of years at Western Illinois. You can get the program once you start a 14-day trial with Team Builder. Use promo code ABCA when you sign up for your free trial at teambuilder.com. That is T-E-A-M-B-U-I-L-D-R.com. Now back to the podcast. You know, and the next one you sent me is transfer training from virtual to real baseball batting, which, again, was was fascinating article. You're seeing it a lot more now, the, the VR training piece of it. So dive into that that research also. Yeah, I'm I'm a big uh, advocate for virtual reality training. I think that it will be the future of yeah. sports training, not just baseball, but sports training. Um, yes, you know, it's not the golden ticket. There are limitations to it. And perhaps sometimes it is being presented as that uh, fix all that magic wand or whatever it is when it's not. But used realistically and used appropriately, um, I think you're going to have huge competitive advantages in that. Um, and so Rob's study, Rob's study is a, you know, the seminal paper in virtual reality training. And um, that's perhaps, uh, you know, an easy thing to say when it's only about 10 years old. But still, you know, when you're trying to design a, uh, an experimental study like that, you know, copy that template would be my suggestion because he basically has these four groups placebo condition control condition and then two different experimental conditions um, and he shows the benefits of vr and actually he shows the benefits of vr training above 
traditional physical training, which is very fascinating and quite controversial, I think, as well. Well, and you can get more specific with it. It's hard, you know, you talk about baseball, it's hard. A a batting practice pitcher is not going to be able to replicate what they see in a game. It's just impossible. Uh, Now, in the old days, I bring this up a lot, in the old days, the batting practice pitchers used to throw from the mound. So probably in the old days, maybe had a little more game-like atmosphere for batting practice for the hitter than what we have now because it's a shorter distance and you can't really replicate um, a lot of the stuff that they're going to see. So for me, that's where the VR piece can get it more game-like conditions and what they're actually going to see. And now that they've added in where you can actually swing a bat with the headset on, that was always the thing that stuck out to me is like, okay, this makes sense because you're seeing it, but you still don't have that swing decision where you're actually swinging a bat to figure out if you actually made contact with the virtual baseball that's coming in. But now they've added that piece in. And again, we're on the ground floor of all of that, that the more that you can replicate what they're actually doing in a game, which is swinging a bat to get that instant feedback that, okay, I made contact with this pitch and I didn't, or I didn't, or I missed it. I think that's, that's where we're starting to make some headway too with, with it actually being game light with the headset on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, to use some scientific terms, that perception action coupling. So having the response be the, the natural response, um, we think and science seems to indicate is key. So having that is, is a really nice benefit of VR training. I mean, what do you think the next step is for VR training? I mean, what do you think the growth piece is for that? Um, so in terms of the technology, now some can already do this, but embedding the eye tracking within the virtual reality headset, I think from my scientific perspective, would be huge from a applied player's perspective or a coach's perspective, I think accurate haptic feedback, so getting that feel. Um, again, some, some systems do already have a type of haptic sensation there. Um, but again, just that I think is really important because, you know, players, players have that feel. They always talk about it, don't they? They say, you know, you could probably clo- um, have them close their eyes and they could tell you where they've hit the ball because they have that feel. Um, and so putting that within VR would be a logical uh, next step that maybe is not a next step because, you know, some people are still doing it already. Yeah, if I had players struggling, I would make them hit off the tee with their eyes closed just to show that they could do it. They would visualize the pitcher out there and then they close their eyes, visual track, and then they'd, they'd hit off the tee and they'd make contact. I'm like, you know, the, you have feel for what you're doing. And then it made it a little bit easier them, for them when they open their eyes back up. Yeah, and it's actually something that I'm toying with in, in some research ideas is, is trying to test that feel and seeing if the better players or at least the better performances are associated with uh, a greater kinesthetic awareness of wh- where you've hit the ball or, or where your hands are or something like that because there's definitely that idea of feel um, which is important in, in hitting. And then the third one you sent was modified perceptual training uh, in sport. So it's another fascinating article. Yeah, so this is a framework by Stephen Hadlow and colleagues. And this, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a study. It was basically a guide, guidance, I guess, for future visual training, future visual perceptual and cognitive training in sport, saying, do you know what? This is, this is what the evidence says. This is what we think would be most effective. And they, they put together this framework um, you know, in terms of what we've just talked about there, in terms of perception action coupling, in terms of um, stimulus response, in terms of uh, representative design, all these different things um, they present and they map the different visual training systems that exist. So you've got your strobe glasses on there, you've got your VR training, um, neuro train, neuro tracker, is it? Uh, NeuroTracker, DynaVision, all these different things. And they've said, you know, this is how effective they should be based on this framework that we've devised. And and as a coach or a sports scientist, I think it's a really nice framework to try and um, base your work off. Is there any other ways to improve vision, cognition, that piece besides the, the glasses, VR? Is there any other things out there that can help improve? 
Uh, I, I mean, I said one of the things that I like about the show Blast is keeping things in context. So anything that, that can do that, I think um, I would try. You know, I, I would experiment with and, you know, you've got to take risks and you've got to try these different things in order to, to find out whether they're going to be effective. Um, worst case scenario, time is valuable, but worst case scenario is you waste a little bit of time. Um, so something like occlusion paradigms where you're cutting off the vision of a hitter, uh, I guess kind of like... Um, game Sense. Game Sense is game a company sense. here Peter in the Faddies, States that has, Dr. Fatty has done a good job. And Dylan Lawson... Worked yes. with Dr. Fatty in the beginning, who's with the Yankees now. He's just got he's in the big leagues now. And congrats to, to Coach Lawson. That's awesome. But yeah, yeah. yeah, they were kind of the forefront of the occlusion training piece, which we would use those a lot of those drills with our players that I felt like that helped a lot with our players Absolutely. was the occlusion. And and that was where we were able to use the T a little bit more game like where we would have a, a you know, you have the pitcher behind a screen that's throwing a ball into the net and a player's hitting off the tee from that was the occlusion piece where I felt like you could make the tee game related, even though it wasn't a moving ball, you could add some of the occlusion pieces in with the tee to make it more game related. Yeah. We actually did the, the a very similar thing as well. And um, yeah, I, I think that is a nice little touch and nice little uh, development of the, of the use of the tee, which, which is great. Um, but yeah, you know, occlusion paradigms, doing that sort of game sense stuff, the Peter Faddy's work, um, Dylan Lawson, what he brought to the Yankees. Um, I think, you know, that is grounded in very solid science. Um, things like eye tracking, uh, gaze behavior, quiet eye, even from a pitcher's perspective, maybe. Um, I've, I've talked mainly about hitters. That's more what I know. But uh, I think the eye tracking side of things is is useful and very in- interesting as well. Hey, from an eye gaze standpoint, what were you finding the best guys did pre-pitch, pre-release? Where were they looking and then when were they shifting to pick up ball out of release or did it matter? Yeah, this is interesting. I don't, there's not one strategy, at least um, that's not, that's what the evidence suggests and that's what we, well, I found anecdotally um also a lot of the time players don't actually know what they're doing (laughs) which is which is an interesting one um and you're also kind of um cautious to not necessarily tell them too much as well um you you don't that adds to overthinking doesn't it yes yeah the whole you're too, too aware of it yeah it's the it goes to that sort of explicit implicit instruction um area of research and and you don't necessarily want to be directing them too much you know you get that overthinking paralysis by analysis all of that sort of stuff um but yes to go back to your question um we tend to have a few different strategies and ultimately you're trying to see the ball at release so you're trying to see the ball out of the hands but what some hitters will try and do is okay i'm going to try and get as much other information as i can before that so is that fixating on the elbow is that potentially um, you know, dotting your vision around the pitcher's body and then trying to get back to the hand. Uh, long story short, we, we don't really know. There's not there's not one definite strategy, and um, we're not sure. It depends if a guy was struggling. We would use some different cues with guys. You know, sometimes it was follow the ball all the way out of handbrake. Sometimes it was just look at the picture, pitcher, and then shift your focus over but it really depended on the hitter and if they were going good we weren't going to do anything but if they really started to struggle seeing the ball or I can't see it we would have them shift a little bit where they were looking and sometimes just focusing on on the handbrake help them follow the arm swing a little bit more but pitchers are so good now about deception you know that's why deception is important for pitchers is they the guys that can cover up their arm swing much harder to hit than the guy where you can contract the arm swing and, and maybe start to, to decide when the ball's going to come out. But that's why pitching, that's why hitting's hard. You know, there, there's yeah. just so many variables. That and many other reasons, but yeah. There's a ton of them, but the deception piece is, is really difficult. Yeah. But that's, yeah, we would have some guys tinker around with some different parts if they were struggling. But I think, yeah, and, and from that, I think what you're trying to do from a sports scientist perspective is not, fit everyone into one you know perfect idea there's not one perfect idea 
but what the data and what things like eye tracking can show us is potential options for more individualized training programs and that is i guess what the beauty of that sort of data and that sort of science can can help with because like you said we could change one guy to focus more at release or to focus more on the kinematics of the picture or to focus more on the um, trajectory of the ball all these different things but without the science finding that out we're kind of just you know guessing yes and again that's the hard part with the baseball is there's so many variables so some of it is guessing uh which yeah you know and and as we have people involved in the game that are asking better questions i think we're going to end up getting you know more specific questions and answers which is what the game needs right now yeah Hey, with, with Dr. Joe LaPlaca's episode that he and I did, did we miss anything? You know, when you listened to it, were there some things that, that we didn't touch on that we should have? Um, I really liked that episode, actually. I, I would say that. I appreciate um, it. Yeah, it was great. And I, I do think, um, you know, you touched on the virtuality training, and that's something that, as I've said, um, I'm a big believer in. I'm doing some research in that in soccer. Um, but that is something that in baseball is probably more suitable to baseball. Um, and like I said, some people say to me, you know, virtual reality training, it's not, you, you can't replicate what's going on in the field. And that is true, but you're not necessarily trying to do that. What virtual reality can do is, is so much more. It can allow you to gather data that you couldn't necessarily gather out there. It allows you to put in contextual information. So you could say to a hitter during BP, right, I want you to imagine there's um, a runner on first and second. I want you to imagine that the count is whatever. But it's not quite the same as actually putting them in a VR environment and then being able to see that for themselves and for them to occur naturally. So you can have the actual picture. I mean, that's the that's the thing. That's the thing that's great for me when you put that headset on. You're going to see the actual picture that you're facing. Like if if you get into the weeds with it, you can put the actual picture that you're going to face. Like that's the 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 great thing for me. You can actually see the actual picture that you're getting ready to face. So you can get a myriad of at bats out of the way. You know, and when you're dealing with athletes, there's going to be some of that pregame jitter. I think it's a great way to get some of the pregame jitters out and and have some at bats here and there. You know, we we mixed a lot of game BP stuff in where the, the BP pitcher was actually trying to get the hitter out. And so they were going through all of their at-bats, you know, their routines, whatever they used for in-games to try to help them flush some at-bats out before they got ready for the game, which I think the VR headset for me is is exactly what the hitter needs. Yeah, it, it's almost a no-brainer. I mean, there's years and years and years of data showing that the third time through the order – that's when uh, hitters do better against the pitcher. So you're just speeding up that process. So it kind of makes all the sense in the world to do that. Um, and when you put it like that, it's kind of like, why isn't it abundant to every single organization? Yes. Because it's a, it shouldn't be a cost thing. I mean, at the, at the, at the pro level, I, I get it, the college and the high school level, there's some cost things. But at the pro level you can whittle away from something else to get that because that's an important thing. How your players perform on the field is the most important part of running professional organizations. So that's something that you shouldn't skimp on. Yeah. And we've actually been doing some research that uh, is asking coaches and practitioners and people in the industry, in the baseball industry, you know, what are the obstacles to, um, to the virtual reality training? And what we tend to find is actually it's the, perception it's the it's the gimmick uh stigma of virtuality training that tends to be the bigger obstacle than you know things like cost and work uh workload and time things like that that's what jamie found with the the defensive guys with the pirates was that the gimmicky piece of putting the strobe glasses on and once guys got used to it then he got all kinds of buy-in but it was just the initial part of you know, and you're dealing with, with a lot of egos, you're dealing with highly competitive guys, and sometimes they don't want to get out of their comfort zone. And, and you know, you would think that they, you know, they're, they're very secure, but 
you're dealing with some insecure human beings sometimes and just that, hey, I don't, it's weird that I'm putting this on. And so you're exactly right that it's just the initial piece of getting them into it and getting them, getting some buy-in from it. Yeah. And especially at the big league level, which is understandable, you know, they've, they've spent their, you know, 15, 20 years having a set routine to get there. You're going to come in and try and change that routine. And it's say, well, no, I'm not going to do it. And that's completely understandable. So uh, it's something that will change. We, we saw it there, you know, the younger guys were probably more receptive to it. Um, so it will change in time, but it just, if only we could quicken that speed up, um, that'd be great from our perspective. I have another former player coach in the big leagues, and I, I won't name names, but he, one of the best players in the game, shows up 40 minutes before the the game, takes a couple swings in the cage, and then goes and rakes in the game. But that's his his routine. Like he has it set, he's had it forever. So like he's he's not overthinking the process of trying to get ready for a game. Yeah, I said at the start, we can do all of this, and we've got knowledge of um, or evidence behind skill acquisition, but confidence. And comfort supersede all of that, in my opinion. Any other things that that sounded good in theory but aren't good in practice? Are there things out there? I know that's not science because it's really about asking questions and, and there's really no right or wrong with it because you're just finding answers to questions. But are there some things out there that maybe sounded good in theory but didn't, didn't work in practice? I mean, we think of vision as being super important in sport and in if it's going to be in, important in sport, baseball is the number one sport for it to be important in, right? You know, there's probably no other other task, no other skill out there that's quite as visually demanding as baseball. So it's quite easy to get caught up in this idea of we need great vision, we need great vision. But, I, but what's key is knowing what we mean by that vision, okay? So we talked before about visual acuity, so the sharpness of that vision as not necessarily being the limiting factor to performance, but things like anticipation, things like um, gaze behavior, um, those more higher order visual skills, those more visual, perceptual, cognitive skills, they are the, the important ones. So I think in terms of what is theoretically sounds good, but is not necessarily if that sounds good, I guess that would be my answer to that is, is vision but knowing what type of vision to look at. Anything that youth coaches or youth players can work on, or is that more just get some experience, get the reps in, and then figure it out as you get older? Um, I mean, the occlusion paradigm that we talked about before, the game sense, those you, you can pay some, some money and get the, that sort of stuff. Um, you can buy it on apps, I think. Now, in fact, you can probably get some free apps for stuff like that now as well. Um, but you can also put it together yourself or if you're um, if you play, you know, you go go stand behind cages at, at BP, go stand behind cages at, uh, at bullpens. Um, that's essentially the same thing. Yeah. Trying to trying to guess the pitch, guess that, uh, guess the delivery, things like that. Um, so those are probably things that I guess youth athletes could do. Youth coaches could do. Do you have a fail forward moment? Everybody has to answer this question for me on the podcast. Do you have something that you thought was going to sidetrack you, but looking back now is one of the best things that happened to you? I've got so many. How long have you got? I, and I do too. <laughs> but that, I love asking um, that question because I think, especially in the society that we're in now, the, the comparison piece is always going to be there. You see p elite people in every profession, but they've all had some things that set them back along the way. And they didn't allow that to, to be a, a fail moment. It was a fail forward moment. So they actually turned it into a positive. Yeah. So I've kind of, I'll, I'll briefly mention two, I think. So when I was 18, I went to Loughborough university and Loughborough University, I think it's the fifth best sports science department in the world at the moment. But at the time, it was the number one sports university in the world. Um, but as an 18-year-old, that's all you know. You don't really know too much about it. And I went there, and to be perfectly honest, I, I really didn't like it. Um, I didn't enjoy myself. I didn't have a good time. And came back home for Christmas, planning to go back in January and my friend just said to me he just said you know you can just drop out you know <laughs> and that had never crossed my mind before I I'd been you know I'd known that I didn't like it there for you 
know, good couple of months, but I'd never crossed my mind that you could actually drop out. So he said this and, and I dropped out and I left Loughborough, the best university for sports science in the world, and went to Birmingham, which is also a very good university. And then I was there for six years, did my undergrad and PhD there, so actually seven years. And being from Birmingham as well, then doing my undergrad PhD, it was kind of like, you know, I'm never leaving Birmingham. Um, hey, what was I the better into, fit about Birmingham for you? I think I'm a, I think I'm in a city. I'm a city boy. Um, Luff was quite a small little town. Um, Birmingham's the second biggest city in the in the UK. So I think that was probably it. wasn't necessarily the course. It was just the fit for me. Um, and so, yeah, so, sorry, just to go back. It's the same there, thing I, I everywhere. In. The social aspect matters too, you know, and yeah. see so many kids leave universities they're at here because they, it doesn't fit for them socially. It, it's not just the athletic piece. It doesn't fit for them socially, you know, which is the big three. It's athletics, academic, social. If you can get all yeah. three of those to line up, it's going to be a good experience, but sometimes it's more the social that gets them out of the place they're at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, social is probably the, the most um, time that you're going to have there, right? The academics is 40 hours if, if you're being a good student, I guess, a week. Um, but yeah, so I, I ended up staying at Birmingham, did my undergrad, did my PhD there. And I actually planned to do a postdoc there. And I basically was told, you know, this postdoc is it's got your name on it. Um, it's just a formality of interviewing. And I'll be honest, I I was arrogant. I was complacent. I didn't prepare. I, in fact, I probably shouldn't say this, but I think I went out the night before the interview um, and probably had a couple of drinks too many. And I went into that interview and I flopped. I, it was embarrassing. It was awful. And safe to say, I didn't get the postdoc that was pretty much handed on a plate to me. And it forced me to, you know, leave Birmingham. I applied for different jobs. I got a job at Newcastle. And that was the best thing that could have happened to me. Failing that interview and, and making a mess of that was, was the thing that changed my life. And it was the thing that took me to Newcastle. It was the thing that made me sort of take my career more seriously. It led me to reach out to Greg Applebaum, which then led to the Yankees, which led to everything, really. So um, long story short, uh, that would be my um, fail forward moments. Mine is a failed interview as well. I was not prepared for the phone interview that I got. And I, lucky for me, I didn't get the job. I wasn't ready for it. But that's my biggest one is early on in my career is I was not prepared for the questions that they asked me. Where was that for? I was for a recruiting coordinator's position. I was about three years into my career. And at that point, I wasn't ready to be a recruiting coordinator. But I got the the job, the phone interview and the questions they asked me on the recruiting piece, I wasn't ready for. So I was getting my master's at the time. And for my advanced coaching class, that's what I spent the entire semester on was getting myself prepared to then be a recruiting coordinator with everything that I did, the binder I put together. So that was that helped me. But it they did me a favor not hiring me because I was not ready. I would have gotten that job and I probably would have been fired in a year or two because I wasn't ready yet. <laughs> my experience wasn't I, w I just wasn't ready. Yeah, it I mean, it's, it's a cliche, but you learn so much more from the failures, don't you? Yeah. What about any morning or evening routines that you do that, that you like that help you stay on? I mean, you, you've got a hectic schedule. So any routines that you do every day that you like? I'm very much a morning person. Um, I would say I, I need to, I need to go to the gym more psychologically than, than physically. I, I, I just think it helps my mindset. It makes me feel like I've accomplished something in, in the day and, and if I haven't got to the gym by say midday, that's that's me. That's me done for the day. I'm not. <laughs> I won't be of use to anyone. Um, so yeah, that that's probably it. Really, um, I don't have any sort of routines other than other than that. And there's some science to that too. I mean, obviously, people that work out more, they have bigger brains than people that don't work out. And that's there. There's some science to that piece. That that people that that do something every day, their gray matters and better shape than people that don't yeah hopefully that's the case in uh, 40 50 years time what are some final thoughts anything we missed uh anything we need to, to fill some gaps in um, i think it's just a really exciting time for this for this area in baseball i was so i still am gutted. i'm not in it at the moment I, i'm always pestering dylan with text messages and emails and 
trying to catch up with him and, and see what's going on there. Um, but it does seem like there's a lot of very intelligent people there in in baseball right now doing a lot of great work, talking about the right things, same, um, generating the right ideas. Um, so, yeah, it's not really a final thought, but it's just me saying how much I miss it, I guess. <laughs> And I hope you get back in because, again, we need people like you here helping to drive it forward. Hey, you mentioned some podcasts. What are some other podcasts or books out there that that people can dive into that want to get in the weeds a little bit more on this? Um, So Rob Gray, who who was my PhD supervisor, who I've mentioned already today, and we've talked about his study. He's just had a book published uh, called How We Learn to Move a revolution in the way we coach and practice sports skills. So um, that is one book that I would definitely recommend. And also just generally his podcast. Uh, his podcast is great. Um, one of the podcasts is probably Ross Tucker's podcast, Science of Sport. I don't know if you've heard of that one as well, but um, that that one as well, I'd definitely highlight. Luke, I appreciate your time. Um, let me know if you need anything, but thanks so much for coming on with me. No, thank you very much for having me. I love coming out of a podcast feeling like I've learned some new things. Can't thank Dr. Wilkins enough for his willingness to share. This is definitely a go back and listen episode to see what I missed the first go around. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West in the ABCA office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter and TikTok at coachb underscore abca. Instagram, Ryan Brownlee 17 or direct message me via the MyBSA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you. I don't have